Welcome to Paranormal Almanac with your host, Kurt Sandvik. to another edition of Paranormal Almanac. On this edition, let's talk about Foo Fighters. But real quick, let's do shout-outs. I got a lot to get to. I'm going to cruise through this. Shout-outs going out to Brenda, Richard, Logan, Lori, Alec, Karen, Duran, Nikki Loves, James, Lori, Rebecca, Ann, Stephen, Cher, Jennifer, Heather G., your friendly neighborhood skinwalker, Zuzus, what's it? Nico, Cher, and the mouse. Hey, howdy, hi. Mark and Tina, Tortuga, Mike from Jersey, Jay Bizzle, Andy, Tracy. Hey, howdy, hi, and thank you again. Virginia Mailman, Tony the Magician, Jason, Vicky, Crow, Clay, Buzz, Lobidorks, Glacier Main, Isabel, Jen, Jen, Stacy, Amber, Tracy, Kelly, Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic Robot Webcomic, Sandy Page, Couch, Batman666, Scott, Andrea, Melody, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Becca, Jake, Charlotte, and the Beasties. Elizabeth, Sherry, Art Muffin, Tim, hey, howdy, hi, Kenneth, Ricky, Alexandra, George, Zozo the Demon, <laughs> Hayden, Cindy, Ashley, Carrie, Robin, Will, Lauren, Russell, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Paula, Jerry, Jeff, Joe, Lawrence, Melissa, the Lauren Strawn, hey, howdy, hi, Autumn, J. Mark, Carolyn, Ryan, and Malena are eagerly awaiting the 300th episode, as am I. Jaden and Ashy, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Dan, Laura Pitts, and the one and only Gamer Fan. With a special shout-out to an unnamed podcast. There you go, dickhole. And, obviously, a special shout-out to Holden, who wrote and uh, performed the theme song that you heard at the beginning of this. And two special shout-outs to Joe Teague and to my boy Stitch. And, uh... <clears throat> I made a huge mistake of chugging a Coke, uh, Coca-Cola, that is, Right before this, so, um, yeah, and eating a big, heavy meal. So this is going to be a good one. Uh, I'll be fine. Don't worry. I'm not going to I'm not gonna explode or anything. I'm just saying, you know, don't do that, Kurt. You know better than this. All right, let's get right into the paranormal news because I got a lot to get through. All right, first of me, before we get to paranormal news, the reason there wasn't an episode last week, I was supposed to have a guest on. And um, the guest kept saying, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then ghosted me which is a paranormal podcast so that's you know apropos but all of a sudden i had to be like crap now i gotta go through and finish up one of the ones that are almost done which i kind of had a feeling that was going to happen that they were going to ghost me but uh but yeah so they did so that's why there was no episode last week except that there was there was a live episode last week that's right spur of the moment i think it was a friday night i think it was a week exactly a week ago um, <clears throat> I decided, you know what, screw it. I want to do a, a live episode because I really like him. Thinking that nobody was going to tune in. And boy, howdy, did a lot of people tune in. A lot of fun, great stories. It's really neat to talk to everybody. I love getting, I, I love getting to hang out and talk to everybody. So if you didn't uh, get a chance to see that, it is still available on the Facebook fan page. And I think it's also still available on Twitch. So either one of those, Paranormal Almanac, you can find it. 
you guys are smarter than me. You, you know what you're doing. All righty, let's get right in into uh, paranormal news. Ghost demons that haunt the night. Strange objects fly through the sky. Shadow people are spending the night again. Black eyed children knock on my door. A portal to hell opens in my room. Time travel man says the world is changing soon. Don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. Love it. Absolutely love it. Once again, thanks to Buzz. Special shout out to Buzz for the incredible music. All righty, the first story in paranormal news. Why is someone talking? Who is this guy? You've got Mr. Longfield. Yes. What is happening? Thank you, uh, Dr. Nemer, for your presentation today as well. Um, I had the opportunity of sitting in the Natural Resources. Oh, um, I don't want this guy to talk, so we're going to stop that from happening. Um, <clears throat> make sure this is all connected. It seems like it is. I don't know. We'll find out. It doesn't matter. The first story in Paranormal News is Canadian government's top science advisor provides updates on official UFO study. There we go. I cleared my voice. It's much better. It's cleared my throat. Much better. The Canadian government's top scientific advisor says her office will release a public UFO report by early fall. I'm looking forward to this. I'm very excited about this. Speaking to lawmakers in Ottawa this week, Mona Niemer said also said that there can be that more can be done to make UFO information available to Canadians and to Kurtz, I think. Look, I grew up in Sterling Heights, Michigan. To get to Canada, we would go southeast. You didn't go north just because that's where the closest spot to get to Canada was. So I'm pretty much Canadian. I think I'm grandfathered into this. Uh, she says, I think there's room to, for improvement in terms of the gathering, reporting on the information, and also making it available to researchers and to the public. I can appreciate that some, you know, uh, maybe national security concern. But I believe that by and large that you can make the information public. And I think the best way to, dis to mitigate conspiracy theories and disinformation. And I completely agree with that. Just think about the whole like uh, there's this big national security threat and everybody freaked out. And people were like, oh, it's UFOs. It's got to be UFOs. It's got to be UFOs. And it probably wasn't UFOs. So you give them a little bit, the conspiracy theorists are going to freak out. People are going to freak out because we're just expecting the worst now. You know, <clears throat> it just keeps getting worse and worse. Hey, I mean, the world's getting, you know, look, hey, I, everything's getting, and personal in my life, better and better. In the world, oh yeah, it's it's a hell in a handbasket. So I think that they're, I think she's right. I think the best way to mitigate conspiracy theories and disinformation is to be Open with the public. As we all know, disclosure's coming. So this is just another chance. Uh, she heads an arm's length office that uh, reports directly to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Uh, let's see. In March 2023, <clears throat> Canadian News revealed the existence of the Office's Sky Canada Project, which is the first official Canadian UFO study in nearly 30 years. She says we should be on track for releasing the report at the end of the summer, early fall. I think a report is going to be quite fascinating on the historic front, so stay tuned. 
the Sky Canada project, oh, the rest of it's all, you know, look, it's cool. I wanted to release it, but the rest of it just kind of goes into, you know, Americans kind of, sort of, theoretically are being open with the public, but we all know that ain't true. So why am I going to read that again? Up next in paranormal news, Utah study reveals the best place for UFO sightings. It seems like every week there's another state that goes, hey, you want the best place for UFOs? You got to come here. Well, now it's Utah saying that. So, oh, let's see what she says. The best to spot UFOs. So you heard that right. If you're into the possibility of extraterrestrial life, well, the crossroads of the West might apply to those from outer space. Sure. These reports from the U say that some of the hotspots are along the western part of Utah and east of Bear Lake. So if you're in a remote part of Utah and the skies are clear, you might just want to look up and see if you spot anything out of the ordinary. Oh, all right. Well, thank you. That makes it a lot easier for me to move on to the next story because that's it. Crossroads of the world. Go see a U. You know, look up. Go see a UFO. It seems pretty straightforward, and I think people should look up more often anyway because you know we're missing UFOs by like looking at our phones. We all know it. So yeah, look up, people. God damn it, look up. Up next in paranormal news, NASA captures eerie holes in clouds over Florida that have been linked to UFO reports and can also be seen from space. Kurt here, they're natural. They're called cavum clouds or something like that. Um, they're just natural clouds. Yeah, they look like holes punched in the sky. You'll see like a, a cloudy sky and then, you know, like clear circle holes punched in where you can see up into the sky. Nothing, nothing to do with UFOs, people. Absolutely nothing. The only reason I'm adding that is because people keep sending it to me going, proof of UFOs. No, it's not. It's proof of clouds. And you know what? I believe in clouds, so I don't need proof. Clouds are in my heart. I don't need to believe. Um, up next in paranormal news, UFOs in Myrtle Beach. Horry County. Horry County? Wow. Horry County sees high number of reported sightings above tourist town. I used to go to Myrtle Beach all the time when I was a kid. Not all the time. A number of times when I was a kid, we would, you know, fly down or drive down. Mostly drive down to, to Myrtle Beach. They had the best water park there. I'm sure it's not as good as I remember it, but I remember it being at, like, the best beach ever. But now they got something better than water parks. They got freaking UFOs. When 44-year-old Angela Angel Williamson saw her first unidentified flying object on Thanksgiving in 2013, she was terrified. Oh, okay. As the sun set over downtown Myrtle Beach, then 34, she smoked. Why are we going back to 2013? I want now. I don't care. Yeah, she saw a UFO. All right, cool. I want now. Following weeks, she reported the sightings to the National UFO Reporting Center. That's good. You should do that. She uh, created a Facebook page called Myrtle Beach UFO Sightings. The page quickly grew. Today, the private group has over 430 members. All right, that's pretty big. Uh, it shows that Horry County and Myrtle Beach are hot spots for reported UFO sightings, not just in South Carolina, but in the entire Southeast. The county had the most total sightings of any county along the Atlantic Ocean and the third most sightings relative to its population across the southeastern United States. All right, that's cool. Since 2000, there have been 2,063 reported sightings in South Carolina. Of those, 470 occurred in Myrtle Beach and 666 in Horry County. Satan. All right, that's cool. Um, well, good. You guys, if you're in the... Uh, 
If you're in that area, there is a Facebook fan page, apparently. Um, you can you can find it, Myrtle Beach UFO Sightings. Uh, I'm just going to join it for the hell of it, unless they kick me out because I'm not really in Myrtle Beach, but we'll find out. Up next, pilot submits report on UFO sightings near Polly's Island. Polly's Island, South Carolina again. Wow. December 14th report to the, the National UFO Reporting Center. A certified flight instructor was conducting training flights when they saw four to five solid orange lights in a triangle pattern in the evening sky. The pilot stated that the lights were not consistent with standard aircraft lighting, stars, or any normal weather phenomena. All right, that's cool. It was about uh, approximately three to four <clears throat> NM. What's NM? North, what? Three, oh, nautical miles. Three to four nautical miles offshore and was only observed briefly before vanishing. No movement of the object was observed. No ADSB data received from the object. The sighting only lasted five to six seconds and the pilot added the sky was clear with no clouds at the time. A student on board was wearing a vision limiting device which prevented them from seeing outside as a training measure so they were not able to witness the object. Well, that's scary as hell. Can you imagine that? You're on, you know, your 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 flight, you're with your flight instructor and you have this blind, like blinders on, so you can't see out. And the whole time he's like, holy fuck, a UFO. Holy shit, there's a UFO right there. And by the time you like you rip that thing off your head, he's like, Oh, it's gone now. Like, come on. It's, flying tiny planes is scary enough. He doesn't need that kind of crap. Hold on, we got a we got a rum sighting real quick. Come here. Hi, sweetheart. Hello, sweetheart. You're a very good girl. I love you very much. All right. Good girl. All righty. Up next in paranormal news. This is one I didn't see coming. I got to admit, if you would have said like, well, you know, I do a predictions episode. Had I done this prediction, you all would have been like, that's stupid. But you know what? I would have been proven right. El Chapo's granddaughter, 18, joins Hunt for Loch Ness Monster, Kurt here, not a monster, while romping through Scotland. That's right. El Chapo's granddaughter, the jail drug kingpin, El Chapo, is searching for Nessie. Her name is Frida Sofia Guzman Munoz. Uh, She's been making the rounds during her Scottish jaunt. Posting pics at a Johnny Walker whiskey tasting, checking out the view from Edinburgh Castle, and hitting the Highlands for a tri- boat trip on Loch Ness to look for Nessie. Um, what else is? I don't really want to go into her backstory. She seems like a very nice person. She doesn't. Why is she being charged with her? Fr- or look, the rest of the story is all about her dad. And I'll be honest, that's not fair. She's a very lovely person. It looks like, and she she's not responsible for. Her. What her dad allegedly did. Kurt here. I have no, uh, I don't want to get involved at all. Up next in paranormal news. Sasquatch search leads to shots being fired at a Kentucky campsite. Ooh, I've been waiting to watch this one. The couple woke up in the middle of the night to strange noises and were met with a man saying something destroyed his campsite. But they said that it was also Bigfoot country, which seemed a little weird that they would say that. The individual then informed them that they were searching for whatever destroyed their campsite and warned them to be careful. This is a new story? I hope you have weapons. And then he like flashed his gun at us. He was like, I have this. So if anything happens to you, then just yell and I'll come. The two decided to head back to their All right, they, moments later. I'm sorry. This new story is w- way too quiet. And then they walked over and then they got shot at. I'll just read it to you. It's all right. 
A couple in Kentucky were forced to cut their camping trip short after they encountered a gun-toting man who was apparently searching for Sasquatch and shooting into the woods. Kurt here, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. The bizarre encounter reportedly occurred this past weekend as Brad Ginn and Madeline Durand, or Durand, were enjoying some time at the Mammoth Cave National Park. Ooh, I've been there. In the wee hours of the morning on Sunday, the campers were roused from their slumber by a strange visitor to the campsite. He was drowsy. Um, he informed the drowsy duo that, he had some, that something had destroyed his campsite and that he was looking for the perpetrator. He then said that he thought it was a different suspect of mine, Sasquatch. He told the two campers they needed to be careful because they were in Bigfoot country. Um, then they got weirder. The guy asked him if they had any weapons. When they told him they didn't, he said he flashed his gun at us and was like, I have this, so if anything happens to you, then then just yell and I'll come. Yeah, I would get the fuck out of there. I Look, not because of Bigfoot, because of this dude waving a gun around, waking campers up. He's the scare. He's the monster. Yeah, there you go. He's the monster. It's not Bigfoot, for fuck's sake. Up next in Paranormal News, commercial pilot reports puzzling orange UFO spotted during flight. With a real ATC recording. All right, hopefully this will be louder. I don't know why it's not loud today. Let's try this again. Well, you're going to think I'm crazy. There's something that just went from right to left to right in a blink and then flashes lights three, four times and vanish. Okay, well, I had an airplane cross uh, from right to left, uh, E-175, and now there's another one, a 777 up there, high off the right side, that's descending to 28. That might be those two aircraft. I'm not sure. Uh, this thing went 180 degrees in like a second. Ooh. Oh, goodness. Uh, all right. Yeah, let me know if you see it again. We'll make a report. Uh, well, the details, it literally went from one coast to the other uh, in front of us, and then it went up like 30 degrees, turned off its lights or whatever it had. It looked like it's a bright orangey thing, and then since we spoke to you last, it flashed us like three, four times, and it's still, we are still looking at it now. If, you were, if I was to give you a traffic call? Um, I would say probably 80, 60, 80 miles in front of us. And it looks like it's coming, I don't know, it's flashing towards us. But it is definitely not an airplane. It doesn't have the strobe lights or anything on it. It's just this bright orange going on and off. Yep, this definitely wasn't an airplane. Wow. Okay, that one is cool. So a commercial pilot flying from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania reported seeing a puzzling orange-colored UFO performed a fantastic maneuver in the sky and seemingly flashed at this aircraft several times. Um, that was a neat recording. I, I hope you guys could hear that as clearly as I could. Um, come here. Maybe I'll throw it in the Facebook fan page as well because I want you guys to be able to, like, you know, read along, if you will, in case you couldn't get it. Um, the American Airlines pilot acknowledged the weirdness of what he was about to say, musing, you're going to think I'm crazy. But then he went to uh, went on to say that he saw something that just went from right to left to right in a blink and then flashes lights three or four times, then vanished. Um, they, as you heard, the air traffic controller was like, oh, it's probably one of these two planes. He said, no, this thing went 180 degrees in like a second. That is cool. Look, uh, you know, some people, even with like ridicule, I mean, he even started with like, you guys are going to think I'm crazy. But thankfully, he went on to tell his story because it deserves to be told. Oh, thank you, Rum. I love you too. Up next, uh, this might be the, I think is this the last story? I think this is the last story. Yeah, this is the last story. Even if it's not, this is going to be the last story in Paranormal News. Ouija board spells trouble for kindergarten key teacher. Kindergarten teacher. 
There's a uh, teacher in Milwaukee who's under fire after it was revealed that she used a Ouija board with her class of kindergartners. Kindergartners. All right. I don't have, I'm not a parent, so let me put this out there to you all. What would you think if your kindergartner came home from school and was like, yeah, we were playing with a Ouija board today? Would you think that was funny? Would you care? Would you be like, bullshit? Isn't that not, that's not cool. Like, would you think like Satan and then kick the kid out of the house? Because, you know, rightfully so. Um, what would you think? Let me know in the comments below. A mom wants to wants teacher fired for using Ouija board with kindergarten students. The game was used February 24th in a classroom at Zablocki Elementary. This is in Milwaukee. An outraged mother is calling on Milwaukee public school officials to fire a kindergarten teacher. Kindergarten. What the hell, Kurt? It's an easy word. Who introduced the young students in her class to a Ouija board. The mom, who was asked not to be publicly named, said the game was used on Friday in her five-year-old's classroom. They were shutting off the lights and making it dark and talking to spirits. That's not something that should be done at school. In an email to the mother, the teacher said the Ouija board had been in the classroom since Halloween. The kids have been asking for a scary story, and I got the board, and I moved the paper clip to answer some of their questions. They asked about scary characters in movies. I did not say there were spirits. It was all done in fun. I understand your concern. It was silly, and I'm sorry. I'll take the board home. This won't happen again. Oh, well, that seems like a reasonable response. The family said the children are too young to be exposed to the concept of Ouija board and that the teacher should stick to curriculum. All right. They, they apologized. She said, my five-year-old is now having nightmares. He's scared to go to bed at night, to be in the dark, anything alone. Okay. Simmer down a little bit. Look, I don't think they actually contacted a demon. I don't think Zozo popped up is what I'm saying. I think your kid's going to be okay. Yeah, the teacher fucked up, but your teacher also, like, Make good on it. Went, yep, you're right. So sorry. I'll take it home. My bad. The kids wanted a scary story. All righty. That about does it for paranormal news. Oh, wow. There's new merch. Head on over to tpublic.com slash stores slash paranormal dash almanac. That's tpublic.com slash stores slash paranormal dash almanac for a new not a monster arrow pointing up or arrow pointing down t-shirt. That's right. It says paranormal almanac, not a monster with a big arrow pointing down. If you feel so inclined or paranormal almanac, not a monster with a big arrow pointing up to you saying you're not a monster because you're not monsters, paramaniacs. At least I don't think so. No one's, you know, tried to kill me that I'm aware of. Um, let's see. I've got a bunch of, uh, Got a bunch of gifts lately. I want to thank and cards. And I love I love letters and cards and the gifts have been absolutely fantastic. There is a weird wind chime thingy that I absolutely love. I don't know what the hell it is, but I absolutely love it. I'm trying to look at it right now. Um I absolutely love it. I got I got a treasure box to put my little fence treasure in, and then some treasure, and then uh lots of neat a lot of neat stuff. You guys have been knocking it out of the park you're so freaking sweet i love you all for it um and apparently i just got a notification which is hilarious because i'm just talking about it i just got a notica- notification just now that there's a package that just arrived at the p.o box i have to go pick up which i can't because they closed 13 minutes ago but still thank you all so flipping much it is so so sweet all right it's been enough time oh sorry we'll take a quick break we'll come right back Before I get to this edition, it's been enough time, so I'm hoping that, like, Queen Mary calmed calmed its tits about, like, me trying to do... If you don't know the story, 
Um, I was gonna I was gonna do a like a trip, a paramaniacs trip to the Queen Mary in like January or possibly February. And uh, so I contacted them to be like, hey, we're gonna rent a few rooms. We're gonna do like I'm gonna do a uh, episode in my room, like record it live on the boat, kind of a thing. Thinking that they'd be like, oh, that's cool. And hey, how about a discount? Or, you know, here's a here's a hall where you can record in front of the paramaniac, you know, like something cool and nice and being like, well, thanks for the all the free publicity, Kurt. And instead they uh, lost their shit and, and, and went off the rails. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like, and telling me like, you can't record on the boat and all that crap. And I'm like, all right, calm down. Everybody that goes on the Queen Mary's walking around with their cell phone out recording shit. It's not going to be much different than that. I was just trying to get you some people onto your boat. So I figured I'd let them cool off, which I have. So I'm thinking in the next couple of months, would you guys like to do a trip to the Queen Mary finally? Um, we'll figure out a date. We'll figure out a time. I'll book a room. Then when I once I book the room, I'll put it out there. And anybody that wants to book a room as well, I'll tell you like, hey, I'm going to be on, you know, the fourth, not the fourth floor, but, you know, the four, my room's 402 or whatever, you know, like that. And then you guys can get rooms right around there. And we can just have a good old hangout, Paramaniacs hangout, either on like a Friday or a Saturday night, because I think that would be a lot of fun. So I've let it die down. I didn't haven't really been talking about it because I was kind of, kind of hoping that they would forget about me, which I think they have. So what do you say? If you're interested, please let me know, either on the Facebook fan page, email me, um, come to my house and and and, you know, write it in blood on my door. However you want to tell me about that you're interested in this, please just let me know because I think it would be a lot of fun. So I hope that you guys want to do this and I hope we get at least a few rooms, you know, a few rooms full of paramaniacs on the boat because I think that would be a blast. So yeah, just let me know what time's good for you and let's start planning this. With that out of the way, we are back. And on this edition, let's talk about Foo Fighters. What are they and where did they come from? You know, when I think about the Foo Fighters, it seems I've known about them all my life. And it's times like these when I feel the need to do a show about them. One of the first Americans to see them actually named them. And, you know, frankly, he is my hero. Some of the info might throw a monkey wrench into what you know about them. Um, can't think of any other one. Everlong. All right, with that out of the way, let's talk about actual Foo Fighters. If you guys didn't think I was going to, like, mention, like, you know, like, let's talk about Foo Fighters. Well, Dave Grohl was born a poor black child. You know, like, yeah, of course I'm going to make fun of that. But that's out of the way now. We're good. I made up, like, how many how many songs did I just say right there? Someone tell me because I don't even know. But it had to be a good three or four song titles there. So that's out of the way. Let's talk about the actual Foo Fighters. Now, surprisingly, hopefully you guys know a little bit about them. Foo Fighters uh, were, I don't want to spoil too much. Um, Foo Fighters were named Foo Fighters during World War II by American GIs. How about that? I'll get into it in a little bit. But surprisingly, I'm not going to start with the American troops and the guy that named them Foo Fighters. But I want to start a few years earlier. That's right. I want to go back to 1941. I'm not even going to start in the skies over England or Germany. No, I'm going to the Indian Ocean. Like I said, it's September 1941, and that's when two sailors on the deck of the SS Pulaski reported, quote, a strange globe glowing with greenish light 
about half the size of the full moon as it appears to us. So they alerted a nearby British officer who watched the, well, let's just call it a UFO for now. He watched it with them for over an hour. They watched a greenish globe about half the size of a full moon as it appears to them in the Indian Ocean, so big, for over an hour. Okay, that time is important. This huge glowing orb was there over there an hour. That's not them mistaking the moon, you know, like the moon. Like, they, they know where the moon is, and they're like, well, that's not the fucking moon. What the hell is this green, or, green fiery globe? It's not Venus. It's not swamp gas. It's not the North Star. This is something the experienced sailors said they had never seen before and stood and watched it for an hour. And that was the first kind of first sighting around these, these Foo Fighters. The Foo Fighters were always described, not always, I take that back. The Foo Fighters were mostly described as a ball or a globe glowing either orange or red, this time green. So that was the first one I could find right around that time that seemed to really like tie into Foo Fighters. From there, we moved to the next reported sighting I could find, and that's by New Zealand pilot Pilot Officer Brian Lumsden. Now, he was flying with the number three squadron's night flight when they encountered two amber or orange-colored lights that followed him on an intruder mission over northern France back in December of 1942. Now, he reported that one light was higher than the other, which appeared to rule out wingtip navigation lights from an aircraft. And that's good because he's trying to rule things out as he's looking at these lights. And he said that's when the lights pursued him until he reached the English Channel. That's something you're going to hear a lot about on this edition about um, Foo Fighters is they pursue planes. So these aren't like, well, I don't want to get to that yet. They pursue planes is the important part. Um, So another pilot from his unit... He experienced the same thing the following evening, but his was a green light, not an orange or ambered light. Now, this story was eventually published in the Christchurch Star Suns newspaper on the 4th of November, 1955 edition, supposedly, and I say supposedly because I can't find the online version of this to read to you, unfortunately, and you know how much I like reading those those, uh, newspapers. It just adds a little bit of of, uh, veracity, is that right? Uh, you know, credibility to it. Alrighty, so from there, we're in 1942. This is where the sightings increase insanely. They were seen by everyone. Americans, the British, the Germans, the Japanese. If they were flying in the war, they all reported run-ins with these Foo Fighters. All said virtually the same thing. Balls of fire, different colors, different sizes, all seem to follow the planes, but not mirror the plane's flight paths. And that'll be important later. So uh, let's first go to the Royal Air Force in 1942. This is one of the uh, first recorded sightings. It occurred during a raid on the Turin Engine Works on November 28th and 19th and uh, 29th, November 28th and 29th in 1942. All right, we're back there. The crew of a Lancaster bomber based at the Royal Air Force Sisterton reported seeing a huge torpedo-shaped object flying over northern Italy. So not a ball of fire. 
not all the Foo Fighters were just balls of fire. This one is that like cigar-shaped UFO, the traditional cigar-shaped UFO. But years before that became a traditional UFO shape. Uh, so here's the report they submitted by their unit to Number 5 Group Bomber Command. They believe it to have been 200 to 300 feet in length, and its width is estimated at one-fifth or one-sixth of its length. So huge. The speed was estimated at 500 miles per hour. Very important detail. And it had four pairs of red lights spaced at equal distances along its body. These lights did not appear in any way like exhaust flames. No trace was seen. The object kept a level course. So again, definitely not a ball of flame like most see, but a perfect description of the cigar-shaped UFO. According to the report, Warren Officer R. Lever and his crew saw the huge object not once, but twice. The first time southwest of Turin at around 11,000 feet, the second, about five minutes later, as it traveled along a valley in the Alps, below the level of the peaks. And actually, this isn't even the first sighting. It's just the first reported sighting because the first sighting was actually seen by three pil- by pilots three months earlier north of Amsterdam. They didn't find that out until after they submitted their report. Air Vice Marshal Alec Corrington, Corrington number five group's commanding officer, Pass the report on to Bomber Command Headquarters for further analysis with the following note. Herewith, a copy of report received from a crew of a Lancaster after a raid on Turin. The crew refuses to be shaken in their story in the face of the usual ridicule and banter. Very important. Even with the typical, like, there's a chance you're going to get grounded. There's a chance you're never going to fly again. You're going to get ridiculed. People are going to make the, you know... Make fun of you, just make you know, like mock the shit out of you. Nope, they didn't care. They wanted it in the report. An Avro Lancaster MK2 bomber belonging to Number 61 Squadron, Royal Air Force, an identical machine from the same unit, was involved in a UFO encounter over northern Italy in November of 1942. Report from the commander of RAF Sireton Sireston to number five group headquarters about a strange object witnessed by the crew of a number 61 squadron Lancaster bomber on the night of 28th and 29th, November, 1942. Now, a lot of people, when I looked up this incident, a lot of people online were like, oh, it's a, it's a German airship. It's a blimp. Let me debunk that one right now, real quick. No German airship could have flown over the Italian Alps in 1942. It would have been shot down instantly, not to mention the speed that they reported, 500 miles per hour, way faster than anything they ever had. There wasn't exceeded any Luftwaffe airship, so strike two. Strike three is the size. What they reported was way larger than any airship, so no, it's not an airship. Again, experienced pilots... They know what an airship looks like. This was not an airship. And it wasn't just one person. Because a lot of people want to go, it was exhaustion. Obviously, they don't know what they were seeing. Wrong. And I'll debunk that one way later on in this episode. So, um, yeah, it's not an airship. Let's keep going. Let's go to March of 1942 when the police, when the police, Kurt, come on. When the Polish crew of the Royal Air Force Wellington bomber over Holland 
saw more traditional balls-of-fire type Foo Fighters. Now, according to the pilot, Sergeant Roman Sobinski, a Polish pilot serving with the Royal Air Force, a bright orange object approached their aircraft from a stern as they were coming home from a raid on Essen. Now, he was interviewed way, way later. That was in 1942, but in, 19, in the early 1960s, so about 20 years later, he was interviewed about this incident because he wrote a report about it, and he said that he had ordered his tail gunner, Sergeant Stanislaw Sepsarinsky, to open fire with machine guns on the object when it got close, but it appeared invulnerable to machine gun fire. He said, The peculiar thing about it was that the bullets were just going in, and that was the end of it. They wouldn't fall away. Those tracers would just enter, and that was it. Now, that lasted for about two minutes, and after this time, and after that time, this shiny object changed position and at a terrific speed moved over to our port side, almost at the same distance, about 200 yards from the wing, then it stayed there. There is so much to unpack there. Um, if it was St. Elmo's fire or plasma, I'll talk about those later, about possible reasonings for Foo Fighters. If it was either of those things, bullets don't go in and never come out. They'll just go through plasma. It's kind of like going through a cloud, you know what I'm saying? These tracers, you can watch the way the bullets were going. They would go into this object, and that was it. They didn't fall away. That was it. They seemed to go into the object, object and it just absorbed them, basically. Not only that, this shiny object changed position at a terrific speed. It moved over to our port side, almost at the same distance, about 200 yards away. Later on, I'm going to talk to you guys about like possible explanations, and one of the big ones is plasma or St. Elmo's fire. It is a naturally occurring thing, but when that happens, it doesn't maneuver at a high rate of speed, and it definitely doesn't absorb bullets. So this is crazy. So that uh, nose turret gunner, Sergeant um, Christoph Grabowski, he started firing at it when it went over to their port side and said no damage was done, but the bullets just vanished in to this bright orange ball of fire. And it actually changed position a second time, this time ahead of them, where it was fired again upon them, uh, fired, fired upon it again by the nose turret gunner. After a few minutes of this, with no damage being done, it flew off over Europe at a 45-degree angle and was quickly lost to sight. I wrote nose turret gunner twice. I apologize. There was actually three gunners, uh, one in the rear. I think it's one in the midship and one in the nose. Um, so all three fired upon this thing, all with that same no damage being done. It seemed to absorb the bullets. Uh, let's see. They returned to base. He was told um, by the pilot of another Wellington flying behind him, that his crew had also seen the object and it absorbing the bullets. All right, from there, let's go to 1944. When, um, not balls, not balls of fire, but more silver and cigar-shaped objects were observed by bomber crews in February of 1944. One over Aiken, I don't know, and the other near Koblenz, and there are other reports on, on those as well. Uh, look, while researching these things... I did find someone who'd done a ton of research, but he doesn't give his name on any of the, the research, so I can't, like, give him credit. But I will say that this research about these about this incident in 1944 with the cigar-shaped object in February 1944, 
this was done already. So I was like, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm just going to take uh, the pertinent pieces of information for my outline. Uh, intelligence documents found in the National Archives located in Kew Gardens, London, described rocket-like objects that were observed maneuvering in the vicinity of the Royal Air Force bomber aircraft as early as August of 1942. The following appears in a Bomber Command Operational Research Section report titled Meteor Projectile. Now, it describes events um, on that uh, mission to Aiken, I guess it is. I don't know what's A-A-C-H-E-N. A bright white light rose from the ground at 8,000 feet, where it flew approximately level for about two minutes. A few crews reported that it appeared to zigzag along the ground before taking off in a climbing turn. Brilliant white periodic bursts occurred, which may have caused a change of course. Some crew actually thought it had been subdivided when the burst took place. Um, and then it's actually a screenshot of the report. It says, um, meteor projectile. This phenomena was reported by a number of air crews in the approximate area, Aiken Viviers, 12 miles southwest of Spa Apspin on the night of 11 and 12 August 1942. Although it has only once been reported since and should therefore strictly be classified as an isolated freak, the interested aroused warrant the inclusion of a description of its behavior. A bright white light arose from the ground to 8,000 feet. So it came from the ground. This one, that's important too. This one came from the ground up to 8,000 feet where it flew approximately level for about two minutes. A few crews reported that it appeared to zigzag along the ground before taking off in a climbing turn. Brilliant white periodic bursts occurred, which may have caused a change of course. Some crews thought it was subdivided when the burst took place, like I said. Other crews thought it flew on a circular course, the radius of which was about one mile. Burning pieces were shed from it like a meteor. The color eventually faded to orange, and the object was last seen heading towards the ground where some crews thought that it burnt on impact. The display lasted about five minutes. Owing to the scarcity of information about this phenomena, which may have well been in the nature of an experiment, it is difficult to submit an explanation. It is possibly, possibly a miniature aircraft structure carrying a marker, carrying, oh, a number of rockets and an explosive charge. It changes its course or probably predetermined radio controlled. So basically they think it's some kind of radio controlled bomb. Sorry, that was a little bit hard to read because of the, uh, you know, it's in a report from the 1940s, but uh, still very cool. What is this? Uh, is any of this important? I don't think so. No, it just goes on to say, basically say that uh, this was, this was six months before the Germans started really, uh, experimenting with rockets in their facilities. So they just kind of discounted that that's what it could be. Alrighty. So that's about it for that report, but I thought it was really detailed and very cool. The fact that it came up from the ground, it was seemed to maneuver, seemed to stay up for quite a while. Very interesting. All right. By, uh, November, 1944, the British also started reporting. Yep. Balls of light or fire. Uh, you know, the typical descriptions of Foo Fighters. They said the uh, phenomenon is seen as a light moving very fast. The general consensus of opinion is that no shape can be seen and no no aircraft identified and that the objects do not fire. That's also important. I want to pause right there because there's a lot of people that said, oh, it was an experimental aircraft and they meant to take down bombers. Okay, they never fire on bombers. It's very odd that if it was some kind of experimental aircraft, it never once fired on anybody. 
Not the Germans, not the Japanese, not the Americans, not the British, anybody, none of the Allied forces, if they were up in the skies during the war, they weren't fired upon by these Foo Fighters. Uh, let's see, here's another uh, snippet that I found uh, from a declassified file. On the night of the 23rd, 24th March, a Wellington near Cuxhaven was shadowed by an unidentified aircraft, which is reported to be using a form of searchlight. This aircraft maintained position about 2,500 yards astern and 45 degrees to starboard of our aircraft. The light did not appear to be capable of swiveling, and the aircraft was at too great a distance for further details to be obtained. Okay, so for this guy, he thought that this glowing orange or this glowing amber ball might have been a spotlight from another plane that just didn't seem to do anything. Then, the next night, on the night of the 24th and 25th of March, near Westermundi, Two unidentified aircraft, each of which appeared to be a searchlight, shattered our aircraft from a considerable distance astern. After about five minutes, our aircraft gave a burst of 30 rounds, the enemy light extinguished, and they were lost to sight. No attack was made on our aircraft. So on that one, they were like, fuck these things. It's right behind us. Scared them enough. So after five minutes, they actually burst some of their um these rounds, these armor-piercing rounds that a lot of these bombers have or, or planes have and have shot at um, these 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 uh, Foo Fighters. And that's really important, too, because it's not just regular rounds with tracers. These are armor-piercing, large rounds, large, ca large caliber rounds that don't seem to do anything. In this case, it seems to extinguish the light, and that was it. All righty, let's get on to the uh, Foo Fighter name itself for that. We go to November of 1944. When three American GIs, Pilot Lieutenant Ed Schluter, Lieutenant Donald J. Myers, who was on radar, and Observer Lieutenant Fred Ringwald were flying over the Rhine Valley just north of Strasbourg on the French-German border. That's when the Observer, Fred Ringwald, well, he observed the lights. He was doing his job. He's an observer, and he's like, hey, look, I observe lights. And they're like, okay, cool. He actually said, I wonder what those lights are over there in the hills. Which, Kurt here, you got to admit, is a good question when you see lights you don't recognize. Uh, so Fred, very, you know, he's doing his job. He's observing, and he's asking the uh, important questions there. He said later there were eight to ten of these lights in a row, and they were glowing a fiery orange. Then, Pilot Schluter, he saw them off his right wing. They checked with Allied ground radar, but they said there was nothing on their systems. That's really important because... Radar never picked up Foo Fighters. None of the Allies, none of the Germans, none of the Japanese. Radar just didn't pick these things up. They thought it might be incoming Germans. He said later, um, uh, he thought they might be incoming Germans, so they went to intercept the lights. And he said that's when these lights just vanished. Now, they didn't report the lights because, you know, ridicule. But more and more crews saw them right around that time, either right before, during, or right after. And eventually, word got out to everyone that, hey, if you go flying up there, you're going to see these balls of fire. So on December 17th, 1944, we're now near Breisach, Germany. I'm sure I didn't get that right. A pilot was flying at approximately 800 feet when he saw five or six flashing red and green lights, and these this time they were in a T-shape. He said the lights seemed to follow him, closing to about 8 o'clock and 1,000 feet before disappearing, just like what happened to Ringwald and his crew. I'm not going to hit the button anymore. 
Then, December 22nd, two more flight crews started seeing lights. One crew near Hagenau, uh, they saw two lights and a large orange glow seeming to rise from the earth to about 10,000 feet. So again, coming from the ground up to 10,000 feet, tailing the fighter for approximately two minutes. After that, the lights peel off and turn away, fly along level for a few minutes, and then go out. On their report, they said they appear to be under perfect control at all times. There's some people that report these things are just kind of like lackadaisically flying around, seemingly no one, no one, you know, with not any control. This guy was like, these, these things, they're under perfect control at all times. Uh, the other, that same day on December 22nd, Samuel, Lieutenant Samuel A. Krasny's, uh, he had an encounter, but this wasn't a glowing or fiery ball. This was the, the cigar shaped UFO type. He said that it was glowing red. So he saw a large glowing red cigar-shaped object, and it was just a few yards off the plane's wingtips. So he instructed the pilot to attempt evasive maneuvers. Here's the thing. They did that. They started doing evasive maneuvers. And you're going to hear that a lot from a lot of these bombers. They would do evasive maneuvers, and these things would stay with them, or they would do invasive maneuvers, and all of a sudden, the thing would correct course to again be either by them or in front of them, beside them. And that's what happened in this one. He said the glowing cigar stayed right next to the jet for several minutes before it flew off and disappeared. Now, these things kept being seen over and over and over again until finally we get to it. Ringwall named them Foo Fighters. Now, Foo Fighters is based on the comic strip Smokey Stover, in which Smokey, a firefighter, would often declare, where there's foo, there's fire. Which, Kurt here, that's dumb. But I guess it's no dumber than seeing a big footprint and saying, oh, that's a Bigfoot. So, foo fighters, that term was coined and people started using it. Alrighty, so Ringwald, he sent a report uh, listing 14 separate inc incidents in December of 1944 alone. More reports or more incidents in January of 1945. Now, he sends these intelligence to the intelligence section at uh, 12 Tactical Air Command, uh, the unit's immediate superiors at the 64th Fighter Wing, um, and they said, All right, we don't have a clue what these things are. They're, everybody was stumped. Um, so uh, TAC, I don't know, Tactical Man, I'm assuming, they requested assistance from the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force in Paris, nicknamed Schaefe. So Schaefe had no knowledge of the phenomena. They asked if the British Air Ministry in London had any information on it. That Air Ministry said the Foo Fighters phenomena was received on March, 20, March 13th, 1945, and it says this. Bomber command crews have for some time been reporting similar phenomena. A few of the alleged aircraft may have been ME-262, and for the rest, flak rockets are suggested as the most likely explanation. The whole affair is still something of a mystery, and the evidence is very sketchy and varied that no definite and satisfactory explanation can yet be given. Once again, March 13, 1945, all the Allies are trying to come up with what the hell these things are. Because all the Allied forces are seeing these things. And they're like, we don't know. Do you know? No, we don't know. Let's try the French. Do you know? And they're like, no, we don't. But how about the British? You know? No, I don't know. It's very telling. Because 
the military, especially at that time, were very quick to dismiss stuff. Like they they wanted to say, nope, I know what that is. You're looking at um, a German uh, air airship, and then everybody would be like, no, we aren't. But at least it's on file as it was a German airship. This time they're saying we don't know what the hell these things are. So let's see, um, scientists, engineers. Former high-ranking Luftwaffe officers were all questioned about balls of fire in a report by the staff from the United States Air Force in Europeans' intelligence section in the early autumn of 1945. None of the 13 people interviewed, once again, scientists, engineers, former high-ranking Luftwaffe officers, all of them that were interviewed, the 13 that were interviewed, none of them claimed to have any knowledge of a German secret weapons program that could even possibly explain these sightings. And the reports, they just kept coming in. Objects flew alongside aircraft at 200 miles per hour. They were red or orange or green. They appeared singly or 10 or 15 or 20 or in formation. They often outmaneuvered the planes they were chasing. They never showed up on radar. These are all snippets from reports all happening in the 40s by everybody, everybody in the war. So finally, at this point, um, word got out. It got out enough that on January 1st, 1945, the combat fatigue explanation, that's what they called it, the Association, Associated Press reporter told the story of these Foo Fighters that they were being seen often and it must be combat fatigue. Bullshit. Uh, the military itself, because the report got out and everybody was talking about it, they were quick to come up with explanations like, oh, it's flares or weather balloons or St. Elmo's fire. All right, let me explain this one now. It has nothing to do with an 80s movie starring Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez and who else is in that movie? Andrew McCarthy? That seems right. Demi Moore? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with that 80s movie. No, this is a phenomena. St. Elmo's Fire is a phenomena where luminous plasma is created by a coronal discharge from a rod-like object such as a mass, spire, chimney, or in these places, or in these cases, planes. So it's kind of like lightning where it's attract or it, something is attracted to the metal or it seems to always be metal, um, mast, spires, chimneys. Something seems to be attracted to it that causes this like plasma or ball lightning to occur, the St. Elmo's fire. But it doesn't do, St. Elmo's fire doesn't do any of what the pilots saw. And that was the best explanation that was presented at the time. They were like, oh, it's a St. Elmo's fire. You guys wouldn't know. You're just dumb pilots. But... The pilots were very quick at that time, which is very rare. They actually went against the report and they said, no, flares and weather balloons couldn't do the maneuvers or track planes like these Foo Fighters did. Plus, these are all experienced pilots and they had actually seen St. Elmo's fire before and they said, nope, not that. So then the army was like, uh, let's see, what else is, uh, oh, here we go. The best, the next best, I should say explanation by the army is that it's combat fatigue. You guys are tired, a little bit tired. Sure. 
Combat fatigue can do strange things to even experienced pilots, but it wouldn't explain how everyone on board all saw the same thing or the number of different pilots all reporting the same thing or the number of squadrons where this plane saw it and the plane behind them were like, yeah, we saw that thing. It was coming right at you. You shot at it. Like they, they were all corroborating each other's stories. Combat fatigue doesn't do that. Uh, the next thing I found about this when, when doing this research a while ago, uh, Robert Wilson, who's a war correspondent with the Associated Press, wrote an article titled, Balls of Fire Stalk U.S. Fighters in Night Assaults Over Germany. And that ran on the front page of the New York Times, January 2nd, 1945. Man, I'd like to get a copy of that. Uh, the article simultaneously says that this was something the German military was responsible for. So they went that route, said it's got to be a secret weapon by the German military. And they actually included firsthand accounts by U.S. airmen. And even in this article, the U.S. airmen were like, what? No, it's not German. No, we don't know what these things are. It's not man-made. They said it's definitely like, we don't know what it is, basically is what they're saying. But they said it's not man-made. And they kind of just brushed that aside saying, When I first saw these things off my wingtips, I had a horrible thought that a German on the ground was ready to press a button and explode them. But they don't explode or attack us. They just seem to follow us like Will-o'-the-Wisps. Hopefully you guys know what Will-o'-the-Wisps are. I have done an episode about them before. It's getting to be about an hour on this episode, so I'm going to keep going. Let's keep on going with the sightings. Uh, More sightings from 1944. I want to read this one because it's actually very cool. I did find a couple of newspaper articles from December 14th, 1944, December 21st, 1944, and December 15th, 1944. Floating mystery ball is new Nazi air weapon. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, December 13th. A new German weapon has made its appearance on the Western Air Front. It was disclosed today. Airmen of the American Air Force reported that they are encountering silver-colored spheres in the air over German territory. The spheres are encountered either singly or in clusters. Sometimes they're semi-transparent, translucent. Supreme Headquarters, December 13th. The Germans have produced a secret weapon in keeping with the Christmas season. The new device, apparently an air defense weapon, resembles the huge glass balls that adorn Christmas trees. There was no information available as to what holds them up like stars in the sky, what is in them, or their purpose is supposed to be. Uh, Berlin's device feudal. Silver spheres above city have no effects as capital city. Washington, December 20th. No detectable effects have been noted from mysterious silver balls that American pilots reported that were floating over Berlin. The objects are described as silver or silver-colored, but the AAF does not know whether they are metal. They added that the descriptions had been contained in newspaper reports, and the headquarters here had no reports from the theater. Uh, Another one. A guess about spheres, the silver-colored spheres that our airmen have reported encountering in the skies above Germany may be new types of floating windows intended to confuse bombing aim of our electronic magic eye. During the winter months, our bombers more often than not have been bombing blind through overcast. The target is picked up by radar and the bombs dry. Ah, it keeps going on. Look, here's the deal. They aren't talking about silver balloons. The closest thing they talked about a silver thing was this cigar-shaped object. But all over the news, they went, Oh, no, they're not seeing fiery balls. They're seeing silver balloons that seem to be there to confuse us. 
that are floating aimlessly or hanging in the sky aimlessly. Look, nothing of what I said so far on this edition matches that description. But that's what was being printed all around the world to try and debunk these things. And a lot of people went, see, there you go. They weren't seeing fiery orbs in the sky. They were seeing these known helium-filled either weather balloons or silver balloons that were just there to kind of confuse our radar. None of the pilots described that. It's a bullshit explanation. Then, October 13th, 1944, Royal Air Force crew from number 178 Squadron based in Italy reported seeing lights following their aircraft, this time over Hungary, during a night raid on, I'm not even beginning to guess. Oh, fuck it, I'll try it. Seskis for Haverar. Well, that sounds like I'm doing the backward stuff at the end of an episode. Seskis for Ah, Nailed that one. It's a town in Hungary. A B-24 Liberator KH-103 flown by Pilot Officer Taylor was followed by intermittent red lights for several minutes. The squadron started reporting numerous similar instances as early as April of 1944 that would continue to do so through the remainder of 1944 into 1945, then, Charles R. Bastion of the U.S. Air Force, 8th Air Force, reported one of his first encounters with Foo Fighters over the Belgian-Netherlands area. He described them as two fog lights flying at high rates of speed that could change direction rapidly. During debriefing, his intelligence officer told him that two Royal Air Force night fighters had reported the same thing, and it was later reported in British newspapers. This time, they didn't call them silver balloons, but they didn't really go too much into Lights in the sky. Uh, let's see. Let's keep on going to 1945. Declassified documents that talk about a B-29 bomber being chased by a Foo Fighter ball of fire. This B-29 took evasive action, lost the ball of fire three times, but the ball of fire would take its own evasive actions and again and tail the B-29 again and again and again. Look, nothing. Not a flare, not a weather balloon. Not uh, St. Elmo's fire. Like, nothing could do what this B-29 bomber reported again and again and again. Three times. They said that this thing came, that some of these things came within 50 yards from the B-29, and they could see them clearly. This wasn't a silver balloon. There were 302 sightings on this one declassified document by over 140 crews of these B-29s. Some of the sightings were a few minutes long. Some were 15 minutes long. This one is crazy. On April 15th, 1949, 59 balls of fire were seen by B-29s over Tokyo and Kawasaki. Not by one or two B-29s. There were 337 B-29 bombers that were part of this bombing. They saw four balls of fire that were shot down by the 313th Wing Command alone. So they weren't just balls of fire. There was something real that these bombers shot down. The bomber reported, the one that actually shot them, said, one of the balls disintegrated when shot with armor-piercing ammo by a tail gunner. One of the balls floated to Earth in a controlled spin after being shot and flared up an explosion on impact. These are balls of fire, not silver balloons. One 
was shot and passed through a searchlight beam, and they could see it leave a trail of white smoke as it crashed into Earth. So one of them, they actually shot it. It started crashing like just about any kind of uh, war movie plane that's being shot down with a trail of smoke behind it. And they said that when it went through a searchlight beam, they could clearly see a trail of white smoke as it crashed into the Earth. These B-29 bombers, these 337 B-29 bombers, said the flight, the flight pattern of the balls of fire were recorded as they arched up from the ground up to flight altitude, pursued the B-29s. They were seen wandering around aimlessly by some. Some closely trailed the B-29s, even through evasive maneuvers, and they followed the B-29s, on this instance, for 39 minutes. The bombers actually lost them by gaining airspeed exceeding 230 miles per hour during evasive maneuvers. What the hell does that? Nothing. Absolutely none of the explanations do that. One of these uh, B-29 crews said years later, the Foo Fighters appearing like a, calling the Foo Fighters appearing like a ball of fire was not accurate. They were like nothing ever seen. They didn't look anything like fire. They gave off light or fire was the closest to a fire that he could say. He said it was similar to electric sparks during an engagement with the enemy. The Foo Fighters distanced themselves from combat but stayed close, usually collecting in a close area and waiting. On the return after the mission was complete, the Foo Fighters returned to trail or even flank the returning aircraft. He said that the Japanese reported the Foo Fighters all sides believed that they were secret weapons of their enemies. That is insanely telling. The Foo Fighters would distance themselves from the combat but stay close to watch. And they seemed to stop in an area, close area, and wait. And then they would, on the return after the mission was complete, after the B-29s have dropped their, their payloads, the Foo Fighters return to trail or even flank the returning aircraft. Which, when I get to possible explanations, that's the one where I was like, maybe you're not so crazy. Um, interesting. He said they didn't look anything like fire, but they gave off light was the closest to fire he could say. It's insane what the hell these things were. Senator Ted Stevens, he described an encounter from the time he was with the U.S. Air Force pilot during World War II uh, he said, this was uh, recounted by Senator Harry Reid. I was flying and there was an object next to me. I couldn't get rid of it. I slowed up. It was there. I sped up. It was there. I would dive. It would be there. I called nothing on radar. And it wasn't during, during, just during World War II. Yeah, the majority of these sightings tended to trail off right after World War II. That is very true. But there are reports after it. Uh, there's one from uh, U.S. Air Force pilot Dwayne Adams. He had witnessed two occurrences of bright light, which paced his aircraft for about an hour, about half an hour, and then rapidly ascended into the sky. Both incidents occurred at night over the South Pacific. Both were witnessed by an entire aircraft crew. Uh, the first one was shortly after World War II in a B-20, B-25 bomber. The second in the 1960s while he was uh, piloting a KC-135 tanker. So they did seem to appear after the war as well, just not in the amounts that they did during the war. All righty. Um, during the war, or right after 
uh, Air, Army Air Command sent officers to investigate during the war. But their research, sadly, has apparently been lost. I'd like to go down some conspiracy rabbit holes that said, bullshit, it's still out there, or they destroyed the documents because it talks about UFOs. I don't know. It's just gone. Uh, but in 1953... The CIA convened a pale con, convened yeah convened a panel of six top scientists familiar with the experimental aviation technology. They wanted to determine if the lights constituted a national security threat. It was called the Robertson Panel, named after um, Caltech physicist Howard P. Robertson. So this panel of the six top scientists familiar familiar with experimental aviation technology offered no. Official conclusion. Come on. Uh, let's see. Uh, there was a guy who was a he's a historian who talks about these quite a bit. He said that there hasn't been any people associated with the top level clearance um, experimental aircraft from the World War II could offer any explanations or insights on what these Foo Fighters possibly could have been. The most they could say is the Foo Fighters probably didn't show up on radar because they were plain light, like saying a most fire bullshit. Uh, they said that radar has to have a solid object. So these things weren't solid. That's all they could tell us, which is a bullshit response to everything the way that these pilots were describing them. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. Uh, let's see. After the war, again, both Germans and the Japanese also said they had encounters with these Foo Fighters. Neither country had any clue what they were. Same thing happened to them. They didn't seem to shoot them down or or want to take them down. They just wanted to seem to, or they seemed to want to just uh, observe. Uh, all right. If you know what, let's we're getting kind of late in this episode. Let's get to the theories on what they possibly could be. Here's a spoiler. They range from secret Nazi weapons to time traveling drones. So, uh, yeah, future us can watch the war as it happened, apparently. Buckle up is what I'm saying. First one is secret Nazi technology. This is the one that everybody goes back to. It must have been secret Nazi technology. That's the only explanation that makes any sense. People say that the fact that they started when the Allies were over Germany and kind of sort of ended when uh, Germany was defeated, that a lot of people are like, boom, there we go. It's Nazis. The Nazis built some secret weapon. So, all right, let's talk about a couple of the secret weapons that it possibly could have been. Kurt here, it wasn't. Uh, the V-2 rocket. A lot of people think it's a V-2 rocket. Problem is, V-2 rockets do not have that maneuverability. It couldn't turn on a dime, couldn't change its acceleration. Once it started burning, it burned and produced thrust at one rating. So it's not a V-2 rocket. Boom, check that one right off, debunk right away. Um, there's a guy that thinks his name's author Renato Vesco. He thinks the Foo Fighters were a Nazi secret weapon, possibly a ground launched, automatically guided jet propelled flak mine called the Fuhrerball or Fireball. This device supposedly operated by special SS units resembled a tortoise shell in shape and it flew by means of gas jets that spun like a Catherine wheel around the fuselage. Kurt here, you're talking about Gamera. You're freaking talking about Gamera, dude. But this guy, Renato, says, no, no, it's miniature clystrum tubes inside the device in combination with the gas jets created the characteristic glowing spheroid appearance of the Foo Fighters. A crude form of collision avoidance radar ensured that the crash, the craft would not crash into another airborne object. 
and an onboard sensor mechanism would even instruct the machine to depart swiftly if it was fired upon. What? What are you talking about? There is not one shred of evidence that there's Nazi turtle shells out there. And what's the point of them then? He says the purpose of the fireball, according to him, not me, was twofold. The appearance of this weird device inside a bomber stream would have a distracting and disruptive effect on the bomber pilots. Okay, it did. They were like, what are these fireballs? But it's not like any of the pilots are like, whoa, what the fuck is that fireball? And like nosedive into the ground. They didn't do shit. At most, they shot at it or did evasive maneuvers. So good job, Nazi turtle shell fireball. He also says that the devices were also intended to have an offensive capability. That's right. Electrostatic discharges from the klystron tubes inside would interfere with the ignition switch systems of the bombers, causing the engines to stall and the planes to crash. Kurt here, except that never happened. Not even a little bit. Not even once were they like, oh no, we lost. Oh, we're, we're fine again. Is that a turtle shell out there? This isn't from some flying World War II version of Mario Kart. They aren't turtle shells hitting them. No. Bullshit. Next. Let's get off the Nazis. Uh, there was another guy that said that um, it might have been Nazis creating plasma and shooting it up into the atmosphere, thinking it might do some have some effect on the planes. Okay, possibly. A lot of these did seem to come from the ground. So possibly, but they never found anything like that, at least nothing that's ever been released. And again, why? What'd it do? So you guys get the, like, foomp launch a cool looking fireball into the sky. We're like, Ooh, look at that one. It's flying after. Oh, it didn't do shit. Let's try again. Foomp, foomp. Didn't do fuck all. What's the point of it? All right, let's move past the Nazis here. Uh, next, it was regular old plasma. Nothing more. So a lot of people say that plasma occurs naturally in the thermosphere. That, for you, like me, that is 66 to 372 miles up in the atmosphere. So the thermosphere has naturally occurring plasma. It may descend into the lower atmospheres and account for Foo Fighters. Except, like I keep saying, plasma doesn't do what these pilots reported these things did. Plasma would just kind of float there. Sometimes it'll go through a plane. Like, you ever see that? There's like a YouTube video out there of ball lightning. And it's like on train tracks. And it's just like this floating, crazy, cool ball lightning. Didn't really seem to do fuck all, but it just floated around. That's not what these pilots described. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they said, like, I don't know, these things didn't seem to have, they were just kind of wandering around. But most times, no, they maneuvered with the planes. Plasma doesn't do that. Uh, let's see. Dr. Rudolf Schild of the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard Smithsonian, says, These plasma are electromagnetic entities that have a variety of shapes and sizes. They have a they have repeatedly approached spacecraft and the space shuttles and are attracted to electromagnetic activity, including thunderstorms. They have been filmed from space to descending into the lower atmosphere and appears to be attracted to planes, fighter jets, nuclear power plants, and hot spots of radiation such as Hiroshima, which was, you know, as you know, big boom bomb. Uh, based on the video, photographic, and computerized anal analysis, including reports by military officers and astronauts, we believe these plasmas account for at least some of the numerous reports of UFOs over the last several thousand years, including the Foo Fighters. Um, hmm. Okay. Possibly. Again, plasma doesn't do what these pilots describe. So what else we got, Harvard dude? 
Um, here's another theory. It was plasma. Wait for it. It was plasma, but plasma is actually another form of life on Earth that isn't carbon-based. All right, this is some kind of Star Trek-type bullshit out there, but people, some people, not a lot, some people say that the Foo Fighters weren't alien per se, weren't UFOs per se, but forms of life that are intelligent here on Earth. Why? They never go into it. Any proof for that? No, not really. Um, is it a cool theory? Sure, why not? But bullshit. Uh, ah, we're going to go back to the Nazis. I forgot about this one. That it was some secret Nazi shit that's different from the secret Nazi turtle shit. It's a nuclear fusion plasma made by the Nazis. But get this one. There's kind of a kernel of truth to this one. Stick with me here. We go back to 1934. It's called Tokamok. Tokamok? Tokamok. I don't know. It's called something, and it's science time, kids. At this point in the podcast, you should get out your nuclear science lab. You are all sent because you're going to need to build a functioning fusion reactor along with me. All right, let's go. 1934, Mark Oliphant, Paul Hartek, and Ernest Rutherford were the first to achieve fusion on Earth using a particle accelerator to shoot deuterium into a metal foil containing deuterium or other atoms. This caused 100,000 100, electrovolts. So do that now with your nuclear science labs. You were all sent by me. Do that now. I need you guys to create 100,000 electron volts. Um, they said that to maintain the fusion and energy would be something that we didn't have at the time, but... Around this time, there was a funky little thing called the Manhattan Project. Hopefully, you all, you all know about that. They said that it was possibly doing this using an atomic bomb. They think, and by they, I mean crazy people, think that Nazi scientists were using atomic bombs. Did they have them? No, but stick with me. To create these Tuckamokes that were flying around doing crazy bullshit things, and it was an offshoot of a fusion reactor. Why do they think that? Where's the kernel of truth? Well, you got to go to 1950 because in 1950 there was a letter by Oleg Lanverantiv, who is a Red Army sergeant stationed on Sakhalin who wrote a letter to the center, Central Command of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. That's right. It was a Russian in 1950 named Oleg. This letter from him says the idea of using an atomic bomb to ignite a fusion fuel is credible. And then he went on to describe a system that used electrostatic, electrostatic fields to contain a hot plasma in a steady state that he says... They've already made in the 40s and had energy production. He said that the author formulates a very important and not necessarily hopeless problem and that it is possible that the Nazis had already achieved this. This is 1950. On March 25th, 1951, Argentine President Juan Perón, yeah, that guy, said that a former German scientist, Ronald Richter, had already achieved producing fusion at a laboratory 
as part of what is known as the Humal Project during World War II. Is any of this true? No idea. But it's possible. And it was talked about in 1950 that this known, real German scientist had actually created a fusion reactor during the war, and these things were either offshoots or a weapon made from it. Crazy as shit to think about, but, I mean, I can't prove it. I can't disprove it. Can't prove it, disprove it at all. It's, it's, uh, Argentina, we know a lot of Nazis left Germany and went to Argentina. That's possible. We know that this guy, Ronald Richter, was a German Nazi scientist. That's possible. How did this guy in 1950, this Russian in 1950, know about this? A lot of red flags of kernel of truth possibility time. Um, let me skip ahead. It's, it, keeps going, it keeps on talking about uh, Von Braun and what he was doing around that time, which could have led to some of this... Um, a fusion generator, fusion uh, reactor that maybe Von Braun was part of it. There's, you know, you go down these rabbit holes that the Soviets then took him and they were using him. That's what they, that's how they launched Sputnik only five years later was because of this information and this, um, this reactor. Now look, nothing is saying that this is true. There's never been anything declassified proven that this is true, but they say if you connect these dots, the fact that it was mes- mentioned in 1950 and not found like through the Freedom of Information Act now or in the 90s, that yeah, there is there does seem to be something there. There's a kernel of truth there, but we will never know is what I'm saying. Okay, um, I'm assuming you've all completed your fusion generator and it's stable if you have. If you created a stable fusion generator, send it to my P.O. box. The best fusion generator will win a free coffee mug. I can't wait to see how the P.O. box people love that. Or, you know, the mail system in general. All righty. What's the next possible theory? Because I'm getting real deep into this episode now, and I'm getting close to being done. Don't worry. I'm very, very close. We're at the end. We're at the tail end, people. You're, you've stuck it out. The next theory was that it wasn't the Germans at all and their experimental weapons but it was the Japanese and they were flying suicide flying missiles called BAKA. Here's the problem. Yes, Japanese did fly suicide flying missiles, basically, and they were called BAKA. But these BAKA were flying bombs piloted by Japanese pilots used against ships. And um, they were never used trying to keep up with B-29s or Mustangs. The BAKA carried only enough fuel for about three to five minutes of flight. So these are short flight suicide bomb planes, which means no. Everything that anyone has ever described, they are not BACA. Check that one off the list. Finally, finally, sure, why not? Fuck it, I'm ending it here. Finally, time travelers. Yes. There are some people out there, and I think it's a cool theory, I really do, that think our future selves are going back they're going to send back these like time traveling drones basically to points in our history to film it for like future TV shows or something, which sounds cool as shit. I'm all down for that. I can't wait to the future so I can watch them. They think that 
that explains why they kind of came up from the ground or they, they took off because we knew when these big missions were going to happen in world war two. Yeah. World war two shows now are fucking popular. Can you imagine in 25 years when we can actually send back time traveling drones and watch it in real time? That'd be way popular. So that's why they think these things are. That's why they didn't shoot down any planes on any sides. They were there literally just filming. These drones were just filming shit. And if one got shot down, another drone would come up and take up, you know, take a, take its spot and keep filming. It's a way cool theory. Can I prove it at all? No, zero proof that future us is doing this yet. But again, it would be very fucking cool if that is something that's going to happen in our future. Not just for World War II, but for all past things. Can you imagine seeing the Beatles rooftop concert from a drone? JFK assassination? Like, you can keep going on with what your favorite thing that you want them to be there for is. But these time-traveling drones are going to come back and film us all, apparently. Why aren't they filming me now? Although I do hear a plane overhead, so maybe they are. Alrighty, where does that leave us? Like... What the hell are these Foo Fighters? I know just as much now as I did then. Like, I debunk the shit that it's definitely not. Um, But I don't really have, like, a nice weight, nice cap, nice ending to this episode. It's It seems like it's just as much a mystery now as it was then. And frankly, like, I don't know. Is there is there any any explanation that would satisfy any of you? Like, nothing... Nothing short of them coming out, like declassifying something, saying, all right, we know what it was. It's time-traveling Nazis or something. Then I'd be like, oh, shit, I didn't see that coming. So I don't know. I don't know how to end this one. Um, I will say that this was a this is one that I've been wanting to do for a while. This episode I've really wanted to do for a long while. And I kind of jumped it up in the, uh, like, I've been working on this outline for a bit. And uh, I've been working on it recently, but I kind of jumped it up into the timeline. Like I said, when uh, when the guest canceled on me, or not canceled, but, you know, ghosted me. Um, so I kind of bumped this one up into the uh, the timeline a little bit. But it was also, it seemed like it was time for a UFO episode. Tim Bentley, went on the live episode, was like, you know, I don't hear, I want to hear a UFO episode. I was like, oh, good. I thought you guys were getting kind of sick of me talking about UFOs constantly. So... I was kind of excited to do this one finally, just like the JFK one. It's been sitting around for since the beginning of, of Paranormal Almanac. I've got a lot of outlines. People always ask me, like, you know, oh, you must be running out of ideas. Hell no. I've got dozens and dozens of outlines in various states of preparedness, uh, completion, um, that are that are ready to, not ready to go, that are there, that I've been working on. I never work on just one episode at a time. My brain doesn't work that way. I need to, you know, like I'll, I'll think of an idea and I'll throw it in there and it just starts out as just the idea. And then over the weeks, I'll throw stuff in there, snippets of like, you know, here's information, here's debunking, here's things that I found, here's this rabbit hole I went down. So like that's kind of the process of Paranormal Almanac. And then I end up with all of these outlines. I never have a script. <laughs> that's obvious. I don't, <laughs> I don't have to tell you guys that. There's obviously no script to this podcast, but... Well, you know what I mean? I don't have a like a script prepared. I just wait until the outline has everything I need it to be. It has a through line. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Whereas this one, I don't have an end to it. Other than 
in my opinion, it's some form of UFO, whether that is time travelers or specific or straight up aliens monitoring us during wartime, because that's UFOs pop up around wartime and around nuclear facilities. This is damn close to uh, the first atomic bomb drop. So, yeah, maybe they were just monitoring us. Maybe they were just watching these fucking dumb monkeys battle each other, um, you know, kill each other in a horrific world war. Or maybe it is time travelers coming back to say, you know, coming to you live from World War II next week on time traveling drones of the World War II's. You know, like, you know, that stupid guy from um, from Curse of Oak Island. What if, uh, you know, possibly, uh, what is it? How does he say it? Like, uh, time traveling drones come back in time to watch the Nazis? Could it be? You know, that kind of bullshit. It very well could be that, but I don't know. I have no explanations. Nothing's come out from Freedom of Information Act, like I was saying. Nothing's come out recently that exposes what Foo Fighters really were or are because they're still being seen by, you know, some way, shape, or form. Cigar UFOs are being seen to this day. So, yeah, I'm sorry. This one doesn't have a quite, uh, like, a, a bow on it, but, you know, there you go. Um, all right, there you go. There's a long kind of, well, kind of long episode all about Foo Fighters. There's your UFO episode, Tim. Hope you liked it. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Samming. This has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Ooh, I just finished time. Sir, now Foo Fighters.